Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of the Xenothesis podcast. This episode, we're doing something a little different. Uh, we're doing a special episode. We're focusing uh, on something a little different. The world of bioengineering inhabited by the Owen Carly um, and the recent release of the much-hyped Cyberpunk 2077 has inspired us to talk a little bit about the cyberpunk genre, bioengineering, and how that might relate to our own world in the relatively near future mostly in terms of the science and technology of that world, but with a little bit of societal and political commentary thrown in for for good fun. And I'm joined in this conversation, as always, by my co-host. Michael Glinka, welcome everyone in this special episode. It's going to be, <laughs> I think it's going to be great um, to discuss this because um, it really does tie in with what we're going to, what we were doing so far and with the also looked forward cyberpunk 2077 <laughs> so i but just bear in mind to everyone as richard said we will uh, we will not really focus on the game itself because i mean my god you can look for there's so many reviews and gameplays and we're not gonna do that we're more interested about the scientific sort of perspective on the world yes. of cyberpunk I say it, cre- it creates a um, a nice opportunity to to discuss what that world, um, sort of how realistic that world is, how close to it we are, what trajectory we're on with respect to a world that looks like that, and the the technology that's depicted in it. It's a nice sort of uh, societal moment to have that conversation because there's some aspects of that conversation that I think uh, are very much worth having in the present. I agree. I think this is. I think cyberpunk, as is its stand, is probably the one alternative ending of our sort of where our world is actually heading towards. Um, in terms of society, in terms of technology, there's a lot of a lot of it. I mean, that reaches almost very close to what we are, what we are at the moment, and what we will sort of what we are aiming at. In future. Well, I mean, you say aiming. I mean, um, Li- I think not like, aiming. Sorry, perhaps aim is a wrong word. Pointing, <laughs> pointing towards. Yes, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Also, uh, like the, uh, it's not really the desired outcome. I think would be the uh, <laughs> absolutely the point to draw. Yes, wrong word, but yes. Thank you for correcting me. That's absolutely correct. Um, yeah, um, I say it's one of the sort of. Um, uh, perhaps not the darkest timeline, but darker possible timelines, right? It's, yeah. Uh, um, the, uh, but um, there are a number of aspects of the world today that I think kind of do indeed point us a little bit in that direction. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic that we have the, the ability to uh, correct um, and point away. But um, eh, sometimes I'm too optimistic. I think... I I still feel like I'm optimistic about this, but I feel like recent advances in um, artificial intelligence and in technology in general, I think, um, really make you think that cyberpunk may not be the universe of cyberpunk may not be as far as we, you know, the cybernetic modifications and enhancement may not be as far as we thought so to be, hmm. right? Hmm. Although, as somebody said. Um, although I don't know, remember who called, who said uh, who exactly said it, but you know, we often very underestimate and overestimate, you know, the progress of technology. So, mm. so I think we should start a little bit as um, as is uh, sound tradition uh, with some sort of definition of terms. Yes, like, absolutely. What is cyberpunk? 
Um, so, from the definition from Wikipedia. Cyberpunk is a subgenre of science fiction in a dystopian futuristic setting that tends to focus on combination of low life and high tech, featuring advanced technological and scientific achievements such as artificial intelligence, cybernetics, juxtaposed with a degree of breakdown or radical change in the social order. Hmm. So okay, so we have a few more terms then to define there. So cybernetics, what's that? If that has its sort of origins with a with a chap called Norbert Wiener, and I think that that dates back to like uh, when was he writing? I'm gonna say the 30s because I can't be bothered to check the Wikipedia link, but um, <laughs> somewhere in that general area. Um, uh, and it, it basically refers to the the interface of humans and machines, or or biological entities and machines, right? The the, the ability to talk between those two things um, and the integration of biology with technology. Mm -hmm. You would think of it as, I would say, not only just interface, but modifications as well. So it's it was a field um, mm -hmm. that was in sort of raise, I think, in like late 70s, 80s. But then because of a lot of um, turning points and um, let's say walls that were set up by the technology of those times, the field itself did not progress far. Hmm. I mean, the the kind of the early visionaries in computer science, people like von Neumann and Turing, mm -hmm. um, were very much kind of like aware of the long term implications of universal computation. Right? Yes. They, they you know it, they didn't see the realization of much of it in their lifetimes, but they thought about what the consequences would be quite deeply. Yes. Um, and the um, so you could sort of. You, you you saw the 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 imaginings of this um, very early on in the history of, of computing, and you're right that it's def it's not just sort of an interface, but the consequences of the possibility of that interface, right? The the, the feedback loops that that unlocks, mm -hmm. and the potentialities that that can be realized by by modifying the technology and the biology to um, increase the degree to which they interface, yeah, um, yeah, and are integrated. So. This is the reason pretty much we wanted to discuss this topic because I think to a surprise to a lot of people, I think this um, there are some already advances in this human technology interfaces as well as technologies that are, have been developed to enhance our usual, normal, average body ability, abilities, I would say. Yes, and I think it's it's worth pointing out that even before we get to the point where we're actually um, using implanted technology, where it's actually like a physical interface between the technology and biology, the interface that exists between us and our computers is still kind of in that category of things, right? Yes. The, the yep. early thinkers on this were, were thinking about, you know, interface, even, uh, uh, you know, just like graphical interfaces and, and keyboards and you know, all of that kind of stuff is still kind of part of that. And the degree to which we use computation as kind of cognitive enhancements or cognitive um, augmentations is is still in, in the category of cybernetics, right? So the, mm -hmm. the fact that I can remember, well, the fact that I occasionally remember anyone's birthday is due to the fact that I have a calendar that tells me these things. <laughs> 
<laughs> to be fair, those things are necessary because my I can I would not be able to remember otherwise anybody's birthday, yes. including and my own. The ability, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> the, the ability to to do you know like complicated mathematical operations um, and all kinds of data interaction and visualization tasks. Uh, in in sort of mundane applied settings, I mean, even things like social media stuff, and you know, all of these things are, are interfaces to technology in mm-hmm. a way that we haven't necessarily been overly cognizant of, right? Yes, we haven't sort of really taken on board the fact that we're uh, increasingly living in this this world where we're thoroughly integrated with our technology around us. Like the next step um, of it actually being physically part of us is, as you said before, surprisingly close. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize the aspect um, that nowadays majority of us, you know, are already fully integrated in those technologies, and it's not even and it's surprisingly because it's all in everybody's pockets, right? The smartphone that's mm. with you nowadays. Um, has the functions of everything pretty much to mm. to to find information that you need to contact anyone you need to to find your location to search to do anything you want in fact and in and it's like a double edged sword in a way it really aids and um the humanity to move forward but in the same time it allows other third parties to collect information and use those information for their own sometimes mm. neutral sometimes nefarious needs so uh, before i um trash some of this stuff and, and <laughs> before i talk about the the kind of some of the negative connotations of this stuff yes. i do want to kind of talk up the smartphone a little bit sure it's just like this so i have this this slab of black glass in my pocket and it represents an extraordinary pinnacle of human technological achievement right this thing is like a a medieval cathedral or a great pyramids of giza but more so and uh, like the the degree of depth of understanding of the universe that is represented by this thing is extraordinary Mm. right the physics you need to understand to make the semiconductors you need quantum mechanics for that gps you need to know general and special relativity to get the timing right you need to know about uh, um, nuclear decay processes to make atomic clocks to do the timing precisely enough to make that work you need to know a huge amount of material science like these these screens made of sapphires now right it's a giant sapphire grown in a, a huge foundry and shaved sheets off of it the it's difficult to articulate like the degree of coordination that is required to just physically make one of these things and that's only the sophistication that exists in the material side of these devices right the the achievement that is the software engineering is also incredible right so i mean all your android devices run the linux kernel somewhere under the hood and that is an extraordinary feat of engineering in and of itself. It, 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 it's kind of 
it's it's another it's like it's a difficult thing to articulate and difficult thing to to share beyond a kind of relatively narrow community of people because it doesn't have the same physical perceptual impact as the sorts of things like you know like i say it, it, it's one of these like it's a pyramid of giza or a giant medieval cathedral or wonders of the world type engineering accomplishments but there's a copy of it in your pocket yeah right? so you, you don't appreciate the scale of the effort that went into crafting it because it's so mundane yes exactly i was going to say because it's so common people take yeah. it for granted whereas mm. the i just the amount of of work time of of incredibly intelligent people they they put all put together like this little puzzles together you know solving this and that and coming out with these yeah. new technologies and discovering this you know theories and you know and physics and maths and ma- chemistry and it all added up to make the simple like well it's a simple smartphone basically almost everyone has on this world and it really just blows your mind when you actually think about it what it is mm. and i think it it's it's an aspect of our lives that we um really take for granted mm. and it's so easy to it's because really it is easy. so innocuous yeah and unassuming absolutely and the thing is and this is why i think cyberpunk is also the um the the sort of timeline or universe that uh, our society and our world is actually pointing towards because with this much of technology right um me nowadays kids are learning programming from very young it's becoming more and more common um you know 3d printing and as such all those things are starting to become enormous and just think about it how f- if in the future where, where we'll all aim towards like it's that human you know technology modifications cybernetics i think that's where it's aiming and that's why i think this is this is why we wanted to talk about this topic of cyberpunk today because it's one of those things that people may dismiss but they're actually are living in the cyber sort of punk world without even realizing it Hmm. and um although if i i'm gonna come back a bit to cyberpunk as uh because there's a few things that we have to um i wanted to talk about a bit more about that before we go on into the technological Mm -hmm. tangent um so in cyberpunk um as a genre in the first um lawrence person um described as such a classic cyberpunk characters were marginalized alienated loners loners who lived on the edge of society in generally dystopic futures where daily life was impacted by rapid technological change and ubiquitous data sphere of computerized information and invasive modification of the human body and that's pretty much really encompasses what cyberpunk or our modern world almost feels like nowadays where a lot of people become marginalized um a lot of technology that the progress of technology is constantly ex- accelerating um people if we were asked people to how to ask them you know how does your smartphone function actually only a number of people could give you a sort of general view of it but it's still i mean like no one no one individual can encompass like like the process of going from some atoms to this absolutely right? it represents 
more knowledge than you can fit in a single human. Yeah. And it, it sort of leads to us to, 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 I think, I hope it leads us to sort of sit down and think about the aspect of where we are heading with this. Because, I mean, you know, there's some issues of this world that we are still yet to answer. And with the progressing uh, progress in the technological development, we are nowhere near to actually tackle the issues that, you know, are going to arise. And you can clearly see them because, I mean, many great authors out there, science fiction authors, have already ta- tried to tackle them in a, you know, in a, a controlled, imaginary world. But those issues are still there. And we will have to, one day or, uh, you know, sooner or later, we'll need to address them. Hmm. And uh, so even in the the current state of affairs, right, the connectedness that is required to fabricate something like a smartphone or a computer has sort of, you know, political implications beyond those which you might commonly think of. I mean, there's the the whole conflict minerals and slave labor in the assembly of these things that represents a and a societal issue associated with this technology. Formation of like mega corporations because of you no know, trying hmm. to um as you said keep a keep um the uh, control over those resources to be able to produce the, uh, those pieces of technology. Yes, and the the structure of incentives and the relationships that exist between the people in this extended network of individuals who are producing these things that comes much more sharply into focus when you start putting them uh, in more intimate places in your life, right? As they start to become part of your body, uh, it becomes kind of, it's more personal, right? As they start to become part of your cognition, even, right? As we use these things uh, to, to aid the way that we think and to shape the way that we think through controlling the, the sorts of media that we perceive uh, that we're exposed to. Right, that that's shaping the way that we think about the world. So these these devices are sort of extraordinary instruments of of power and influence. So it is essential that we think about who holds the string to that power. Exactly, because in the limit, freedom of compute, freedom to do what you want with your computational devices, will become synonymous with freedom of thought. And I think this is the big. Um big, big sort of grand um, idea behind the cyberpunk genre. This sort mm-hmm. of freedom of computing and freedom of speech being basically one. You know, freedom mm-hmm. of, you know, being able to, as now, modify your device in any way you want um, because you don't want like one or two things. Of course, it requires some technical uh, technological knowledge. But then when mm-hmm. it becomes also part of your body, mm-hmm. And it's it's modifying yourself and your technology in the way that, that you want, in the way that you retain control over. But in the context where no individual has the capacity to do that work alone, right? Yes. So what you have is a, a challenge of trust architecture, right? Who do you trust to do this? And who has the whose incentives are aligned with your own best interest to... Um, to create technology that you will use um, that is actually in your own interest, right? Because if you if you modify yourself to to 
let's say, you know, uh, have some uh, implant, whatever, and that belongs to a corporate entity, right? In the way that, in a very important sense, if you buy a phone from, say, Apple, Samsung, or any of these other companies, right, the phone kind of doesn't really belong to you in any meaningful sense, because you are very limited in your freedom to change what computations take place on that device. The people who create the operating system and the code that runs on it, they have the power to do with that device more or less whatever they want. They have remote access to it. They can change how it functions. And only to the degree to which it is in their interest to serve your interest will they do so. And I think this is a point where, you know, we need to really have not only just us as, you know, every, you know, every random person on the world, but also like our political leaders that we, you know, uh, democratically um, vote for to start discussing this stuff. Because this is becoming mm. more and more um, apparent that our uh, laws and regulations are becoming less and less, um, how do you, would you say that? accurate or they just not they're not keeping up with what is happening yes. in technology they're becoming Obsolete. out of date yeah um so i think one of the areas that becomes a, a, an interesting thing to talk about here is and related is we've got the cyberpunks but there's also the cypherpunks right so encryption is an area that's uh, sort of very important for individual freedom of expression freedom of assembly um, freedom from unlawful search all of those kind of fundamental freedoms that get established in a democratic context in the physical world are dependent on the existence of kind of strong encryption available to the public right it's kind of an if you go back to sort of like the american revolution kind of angle right the um the right to bear arms right the the whole um second amendment idea right this notion that you ha you have uh weaponry to protect yourself from government overreach right? there's something of analogy between crypto and um firearms in that context right i mean of course the advantage in the crypto field is that the protection uh is not quite the same right it's it, crypto isn't killing people in quite as direct a way <laughs> as firearms might right so there's a there's kind of a less strong case against um the regulation of crypto uh, than there is against the regulation of firearms yes, it's about Just your to, privacy yeah um, it's about it's uh, about yeah about privacy and about about freedom of, of uh, freedom to communicate with others like the the analog of freedom of assembly mm. right so in order to to protect those rights you have to have some degree of um, ability to uh, like resist state action right that's because you know the you know, a government should only kind of uh, should only be in power if it is acting in the interest of the people so the people need to retain the freedom to act in a way that is uh, counter to um, the government if the government should become corrupt right that's the whole kind of what some of the underlying principles of the uh, like uh, of the american revolutionary th thought right and that that uh, model of governance that the americans have i think 
um, I think this topic, let's hmm. leave it for a bit later because there's something as we can continue. But I just want to say something about that as well. But I just feel that we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves. A little bit. A little bit. So today, um, we're sort of, we'll talk about a bit about the society part aspect of the cyberpunk. And then we'll, as as you heard, dive into more of the technology from perspective of the actual physical technology from the software and then as well as the biology medicine aspect of it. So so there's just one point I'd like to finish mm-hmm. on the, the crypto point. Absolutely. Just to talk a little bit about the history of that because, because I kind of started there. Um, so it used to be the case that strong cryptography, cryptography of the... Um, pretty good privacy RSA sort, right? Something that's using um, genuinely difficult to crack asymmetric methods was classified as a munition by the US government. So like strong crypto was under was subject to arms control in the same way that uh, an actual physical weaponry was. But there was a ruling um, that classified uh, source code and um, descriptions of cryptographic algorithms as being protected under the first amendment which meant that you could no longer apply this munitions uh classification to cryptographic technologies which is kind of a a very important step in making strong crypto available to the public and sort of without without that without open cryptography of a strong kind like the the modern internet infrastructure basically could not exist that you couldn't securely have web traffic you couldn't do financial transactions there's there's like there's just no real way of having that work without having publicly available strong crypto mm-hmm. so it's a very important um sort of landmark in the history there and i think um this is this important what richard just said because it sort of ties in a lot to um our sort of first point of today's discussion about the society on the fact of that the aspect is that the uh, ability to be able to um have that freedom of you know the the ability to share that information the ability to access you know do all of this that encryption allowed um sort of allowed to balance down the societal differences in a way maybe because in cyberpunk we look um at the universe of cyberpunk we have this idea of continuously increasing differences between societal classes as, as such as if you could describe them hmm. um we mentioned earlier about the you know mega corporations you know um leading to everything you know to controlling some more uh, a lot of resources for their own needs while destroying some countries even and this aspect of um, cyberpunk, I think, is it mm. actually his how the home too close in a way, because it's basically what is happening at the moment. Uh, yes, I mean, I think there's a this again keeps us a little bit away from the technology stuff. Uh, it's more societal commentary, but the the way in which corporations, certainly under the U.S. model, are currently constituted, where shareholder primacy is the um, the, the model under which they work right so they are mandated it is their fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder profit yes uh, as their kind of um like sole utility function 
that's the the way in which a conventional c corporation works right if you're not maximizing shareholder profit then you are not um then you you open yourself up to to suit by those shareholders so you have a very strong incentive to act only in that way um this tends to produce a certain amount of short-sightedness and it creates these uh, corporate entities that have kind of these mind-like properties right the corporations are kind of their own self-replicating entities that have a sets of goals right there's the whole school of thought of you know corporate hive minds and the like of it right mm-hmm. but so you you create these kind of um entities with this like sociopathic utility function of maximize shareholder profit without regard to anything else and that um and that creates a, a very perverse set of incentive structures because try as you you might from an sort of anarcho capitalist world you can't fix the this issue of uh like economic externalities yeah Right, you have without um, some governmental entity to ensure that uh, externalities are actually being paid for. Right, the the the, the negative effects that like do not affect the two parties directly involved in the economic trade; those are externalities. Right, so you know some, something that is going to negatively impact on the rest of us, but might not impact on a deal between two corporations, is not accounted for in the incentive structure that governs those entities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to find a way of re-internalizing the externalities. Right? And that's free market people kind of get confused about this because they think free, freedom of the market means freedom in, in all dimensions, but it, it doesn't. It means freedom along a specific set of dimensions. It's possible to increase market freedom by decreasing freedom in relevant dimensions. Right. So uh, creating something that is not a monopoly increases market freedom because like market freedom has a specific technical meaning. It doesn't mean freedom in all ways. But yeah, this is a sorry tangent hobby horse, <laughs> right? Um, no, this. I mean, this today's topic will lead to many tangents because, and we only touched about it. We only just you know skimmed the surface. So I hope everybody's mm-hmm. ready for a lot of our ramblings about a lot of these topics. But a lot of yes, them need to is... be discussed in a at least prompt a discussion. I would say. Yeah, I mean, so many of these things are quite deeply connected to one another that it makes a it makes it difficult to talk about one without ending up talking about the other yeah yeah but yeah i mean the, the, the point the larger point is that corporate entities have a utility function they have a thing that they are trying to maximize that is not necessarily aligned with your own right the maximization of shareholder profit for a given corporate entity is not necessarily likely to align exactly with the maximization of your own individual well-being yeah and the existence of that conflict between those things means that uh the degree to which you should place trust in any given corporate entity is limited by the degree to which you can be sure that your um your utility function aligns with their own and i think this is in a way very sometimes over exaggerated in the cyberpunk um genre it really um we 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 push it to the limits where you know and do do some um in, in the genre that it shows that we i would say how do i say this um it often gets over um like described in this way but it in, but it's an important topic to discuss because it is slowly taking place in some countries so as you know as richard mentioned in usa this is probably the most um visible 
when corporations are taking over certain aspects and especially like I mean this is a bit of a rant now but now I'm on a tangent <laughs> which I'll keep short Nestle um, keeping you know um, certain areas of America completely cut away from water um, yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. things like this are very are, are an essence of what cyberpunk um, universe encompasses right mm. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a theme of kind of the the capture of governmental entities by um, corporate interests, yeah. uh, which is yeah increasingly a theme that is is playing out um, in the US. Right, the degree to which law is for sale there is um, uh, disturbing. Um, so I think here yeah. we should. I was planning to sort of continue talking about this, but I think it's not a good time to talk about this because we need to first of all discuss about the technology. Um, okay. And I think the technology part will allow us to make the point later on. So I think we should start talking about the first sort of section of what we wanted to discuss is the human te- machine interface uh, aspect of technology present in cyberpunk. And mm-hmm. I think here, maybe Richard, do you want to introduce your points? Because I think you probably know a bit more about this uh, since you wrote the section. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, <laughs> I just put a few bullet points in here, but um, so um, one of the things that that ties in with what we were talking about um, in most of the rest of this podcast with genetic engineering to some degree, right, the biological manipulation, is that um, one of the things that I think we can expect to see, um, maybe not in the very earliest stages of kind of, of this process, but before too long, I think we'll expect to see engineering of people to improve the ability to interface with technology. Mm-hmm. So one of the areas um, that this has already been done in, in lab animals is something called optogenetics. Um, so you can take a, um, a mouse or a rat or some that uh, small animal of some kind to do convenient lab experiments on, and you can engineer their neurons to contain light sensitive ion channels um, called opsins. Um, So an an ion channel is what controls um, to a significant degree whether or not a neuron will fire, whether it produces an impulse um, which is kind of the the building block of of how neurons communicate with one another in the brain. So you can produce impulses from individual neurons um, in a very temporally and spatially specific fashion by just shining a little laser light on a particular spot of one of these engineered neurons that contains opsins. So you can basically uh, control what neurons are firing with very precise temporal and spatial resolution in these animals um, using this optogenetics technology. And one of the difficulties that we have um, at present is in, in attempts to kind of engineer interfaces between neurons and uh, our electrical technology is uh, using electrical impulses and detection of that um, kind of thing. There's a degree to which you can be precise with that, but there's quite a lot of kind of um, leakage of signal. You can get kind of a, a broad picture of neurons, so that has some advantages at present. I would say, in a way, the way I imagine it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of like an analog mm-hmm. to digital converters, right? Because the mm. neurons, although it's they're not one and zeros. There's a certain concentration gradients of the ions that are being released to actually fire on the signals. And of course, 
in in our brains, the more connections a neuron has, the more ions will be exchanged between the neuron and axon, and basically um, the strength of the signal will be stronger. So now the question is, you know, obviously when there's an interfaces, we need to so first of all be able to read those um, signals. Secondly, is to amplify that signal. Obviously, there are a lot of um, modern technology. You know, like it's pretty simple to amplify a uh, signal nowadays. I mean, modern cameras do that a lot and and stuff like that. So that shouldn't be a problem. But it's just the fact that understanding whenever the neuron is firing, is it actually firing or is it just some sort of background noise? Let's and say having the the spatial precision to say this electrical signal came from this particular neuron exactly. is, is a it's a very challenging so thing. it's i think um one of this recent announcements by elon musk of the Neuralink, you know having a chip in mm-hmm. your brain is still i think a far-fetched story from, from just surely uh, from this perspective hmm. i mean so that's kind of where the um electrical interface stuff has a bit of an um there is a at present an edge because we engineering something that is working at the individual neuron level is extremely difficult but um the electrical stuff can let you work kind of at the level of collections of neurons yes, yes. um so that um and because broadly speaking you know collections of neurons uh, have kind of related functions to some degree right? there's a certain amount of localization to areas so you, you can get kind of a fuzzier picture of what's going on in broader terms with an electrical interface that's that's perceiving signals from multiple different neurons absolutely um and you know, the precision of that may increase it, it, it and there may be you know electrical based engineering options to in, increase that precision still further but um at present the the optogenetics one is the kind of if you want to do like a single neuron level precise kind of interface i think that has a lot of potential yeah i think this is as you said this is a bit more further down the line aspect Mm -hmm. although it might be it might be different it might be fact that you know we do actually utilize some sort of form of this technology to be able to Mm. um um create that bridge between human and the machine yeah i mean the 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 sort of the point of that is ultimately the the creation of a high bandwidth interface between neuronal systems and digital electronic systems so that you can go back and forth with data between your brain and the computer at a much higher bandwidth than you can achieve by um uh for example, you know, typing stuff out. I considering that um, the processing power of a brain is so much, so much more than current any of the current diff, you know, computers on the world. Um, I in, guess in some senses, again, in, yeah, in some senses. Yeah. Um, I guess the limiting factor will all at, the, at least at the moment would be the technology to actually the bottleneck would be behind the uh, the, the machine, uh, not the brain. You know, I sort of, well, I sort of, I mean, I know it's the fact of that. You know, our brains, you know, thinking process, etc., is like it's maybe not be as fast as computers, but like hmm. um, because you know, computers can do millions of calculations simultaneously. But the fact is that our memory capacity and the computational process is actually much higher. So maybe with the technology, we would be able to utilize that um, in a better 
more efficient manner? I mean, there are, I think, two kind of disjoints that are difficult to to solve. I mean, one is kind of like the clock speed issue, mm-hmm. right? So we run, at, I forget exactly, maybe a few hundred hertz, right? So it's a relatively small number of operations per second, but it's highly distributed. Mm-hmm. Whereas computers run at multiple gigahertz, um, so, you know, many billions of operations per second. So we have a, a kind of that translation issue, right? Because uh, you know computers are much more serial, and we are much more parallel. Yep. And then there is also, um, as we kind of discussed uh, before, like how exactly we encode stuff. And you know, there may be differences in diversity in the way that humans store information in some sense that might be a uh, we don't know to what degree that's an individual thing and to what degree it's um as standardized as it were mm. across the human population that's a good point, yeah and we 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 also use a lot of um uh like uh, we clearly have to use a lot of although we don't really understand what they are kind of like hacky compression shorthands where we you know approximate something and then store that approximation and then use it to infer um, what the original thing that we stored was with some uh, heuristic for decompressing it, right? We are much less precise in our operations yeah. Yeah. Um, than our computers. Uh, we take a lot of uh, hacky shortcuts, basically, because you know, evolution cares about what sort of happens to have worked rather than like good engineering principles <laughs> i mean yes yes that's absolutely a good point yeah so so taking on this point further like i if we think about this um then how it's gonna be like if if we are working on like our brains are looking like working on lower frequency that means that the technology interfaces maybe will not have to be as like physically demanding uh in terms of like the processing power as like, for example our modern you know, smartphones or like computers are um well i mean the the challenge exists in the translation layer right that's the the kind of the main problem i think that's it's the not biggest a problem, issue yeah. of raw horsepower yeah, yeah so it's it i think recently kurz gazak um channel released a video on cyberpunk and um brain sort of interface but more in the terms of like the fact of um uploading our brains onto computers Hmm. and they did discuss about um the whole aspect of you know like this simulation of um of our brains into a you know network right and all those problems Hmm. and issues and ethical issues associated with it yeah yeah and it feels that this technology is gonna take a while though still Oh yeah, that's that's kind of a long way off. Although there's a there's a couple of I think useful points to discuss um, that arise from that because that particular scenario, like the mind upload one, mm-hmm. that's like that really crystallizes the um, in the limit freedom of compute is freedom of thought. Yep. Point because if you if your brain is literally running on computer hardware, then your freedom to do what computational operations you wish on that hardware and not have third parties limit those is literally freedom of thought, right? Because you're using the hardware to run your thoughts on. So if you don't have the freedom to do what you want with it, you don't have freedom of thought. That's the 
that's the limit condition. Absolutely. Now, but kind of before we get there, the possibility of the influence of technology on the way that we think um, through the sorts of manipulations that you see with social media nowadays is like the beginnings of that trajectory. Yeah, it's pretty scary to be honest. Like this, this whole idea, I know, because just thinking about this whole idea of um the the more of a I would say um um like playing ads basically. You know, let's just take the silly argument, but like the playing ads in your brain, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you have the ability, for example, to connect to any device because you have an interface to your brain, and you can use that to search and upload any knowledge you want. But then like youtube you have to wait 25 seconds for an ad to finish right it's it's it, it's a silly yep. it's a That's silly a, example but it delivers the point in, insert um the f- insert the clip from from future armor here where frey yeah frey of course yeah we go uh, where he wakes up in like uh from a really ridiculously vivid dream and says i had this crazy dream about this product and oh yeah it was an ad when he tells his colleagues about it the next day it's like there are ads in dreams now yes that's the way we're going. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, or the, I remember this one clip when he went to Apple and he got like this, basically a chip behind your eye and stuff like that. It's just, yeah, this sort of idea of like the freedom of being able to modify your body, but then um, owning that hardware because it literally is part of your body um, is... Well, it's not so much the hardware, well, like, hardware and um, software, because, to be honest, the open ability. Yeah, so it's like when you when you are physically in possession of a piece of hardware, you do have a lot of freedom over it, just intrinsically, right? If I have a phone, I'm free to smash it. Yeah, right? there's not much that you can do about that, right? You can't put DRM on the phone that stops me from hitting it with a hammer. <laughs> yet, yet, until it <laughs> transfer, it's made into transformers. Yeah, basically. So once I'm trying to use my robot arm to hit the phone with a hammer. The DRM can stop me, and that's a big problem, right? Yeah. That's the problem, right? Yeah. So if I'm if I'm using my prosthetic arm that is owned by Samsung to smack my Samsung phone with a hammer, somebody at Samsung might decide mm, you can't do that, and there's very little I can do to stop it, unless I have freedom of uh, over what's running on the hardware, right? Freedom uh, uh, to control what the software is. Yeah, <laughs> just. Um, I should probably at this point bring up the um the kind of the ideas uh, from like the free software movement um so that there's a certain um philosophical distinction to be drawn between open source software which is software where you can see the source code right so the um the human written part of the software that you can compile or interpret to run on hardware right um the ability to to look at that is open source but there's a bit more to free software than just the ability to see the code mm-hmm. so there's the freedom to run the code uh not just the freedom to to see it right so things like drm might try and or digital restrictions management digital rights management um, might try and prevent you from running certain forms of code then there's uh so that's the sort of freedom zero right freedom to run it freedom one uh is like the freedom to see the source code, the freedom to uh, look at it, um, uh, 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 the freedom to to modify it um, to to your own ends, right? So if you if, if you don't like something in it, the right to be able yeah. To edit so it. like if I, if I if if the code's been made public, I can 
I can make a copy of it. I can change it. I can run the changed version. Yeah. Right. If I have freedom zero to run it, then there's freedom two, which is the freedom to distribute it. Right. So the freedom to distribute copies of the source code, however I see fit. Yeah. And then there's freedom uh, three, which is the freedom to distribute modified copies. Without, for example, the uh, DRM parts or in the software. Well, yeah, I mean, so that's most relevant to the um, the freedom to run yeah. it bit. Um, but so if, if you have the um, first and second freedoms, then DRM is less likely to exist in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so software that is released under licenses which give you those four freedoms, like the GNU... Um, uh, license for GPL3 and um, certain um, Creative Commons licenses. There's lists of the right kind of licenses for that respect these kind of freedoms um, up on the uh, Free Software Foundation's website if you're interested in that technicality. But um, So if you have software that is subject to one of those licenses, then you have kind of the ability to you have the ability to review it yourself, but you also have the ability to have trusted communities of people who are looking at it and reviewing it and creating modifications to it, and who are kind of uh, whose interest whose interest it is in to maintain it in a way that is respecting of the users' rights because they are users of yep. it, and because like social opprobrium will be attached to attempts to introduce uh, things like digital rights management or privacy invading aspects of that software right if you have an open source tool and you introduce those things to it people notice and they get pissed off and they fork it make their own copy and remove the bits they didn't like pretty much right? yes it gives yeah right it, it gives them that uh, ability and it is worth pointing out that free software does not necessarily mean um, financially free it doesn't mean gratis in the, the French or Spanish sense it means libre in the French sense uh, free as in freedom of speech or um, thought not free as in free lunch or free beer Yeah, there, there isn't a good word in English that, that does that distinction in a way it also makes sense if there's a community or at least a group of people working on something and one does want to continue for them to work on something in their time you know there has to be some hmm. sort of gratification for the work they're doing in a way hmm. i mean the the economic models around free software are often kind of cited as a as a, as a challenge yeah um but so there are many successful businesses that at the very least operate an open core model mm -hmm. where the, the core of their software that is available to the public is open source and released under one of these um, free software licenses. Mm -hmm. And it might be the case that it, it, it could be reasonable to say business-to-business -business relationships don't necessarily have to be governed by this yeah. rule, but business-to-consumer mm -hmm. require a, um, a free software license. So you could still make money in B2B, but um, in business-to-consumer uh you have a different kind of model and there are many models you know um increasingly for example you have the the pay what you want model um being relatively successful for people who are content creators um i think it's because people appreciate you know, after what you did especially after they really appreciate the they tend to exactly. pay more right. 
then the the payment is for the the work and the time spent right it's developer time that you're paying yeah. for when you do that kind of supported model as opposed to um when when you have software licensing of the proprietary sort stuff that's uh, might be protected by copyright law you've created that, that's where you've kind of created this this artificial monopoly mm. that that supposedly protects the uh um the uh, the ownership of that creation that kind of invention yeah uh, or a product of the the company but uh, frequently especially as copyright law uh, and becomes extended for longer and longer periods to protect these artificial monopolies that are designed to um or should be and were originally intended to try and provide the sort of incentive for people to create products so they had a period where they could profit from it like as that gets extended longer and longer it just becomes increasingly a mechanism of of uh rent seeking yeah as opposed to actually producing any anything productive and it 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 very much it, it creates a, a lot of perverse incentives um to have this this closed source uh and non-free software because if if you have the ability to kind of change the software however you like and the users don't really have any capacity to to change that right that like the the costs of like switching to some other product might be very high um and it's really and even if they need a kind of relatively minor change it's not something they can implement because they don't have the source code so there's a lot of this kind of lock-in problem that you can't solve there and and there are the incentives for individuals making proprietary software are more or less uh, to in the long term at least screw over their users right that there's a it creates a power imbalance because if you control the software you, you um are effectively incentivized to extract from the people who are using it um, either in um, information uh, through like uh, surveilling them and selling that yeah. on um, but even sort of simpler stuff like having the company go out of business and cease to exist if, the, if that software remains proprietary and is not available for people to edit then that takes uh an otherwise functional device that requires that software to, to do its job and renders it either subject to rapid obsolescence because it becomes vulnerable to security updates or whatever and it it limits its feature set to whatever was currently implemented in software right you can't it's a big issue actually in 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 our field um with like lab devices absolutely this is right? this... so there are so many biotech companies that make machines that run in labs where like the development effort on the software is pretty crap to start with and, and then there's no support it's basically proprietary software that only runs on certain operating systems that certain agent modern operating yeah. systems cannot handle it because they're too modern mm -hmm. and yeah it's one of those aspects where soft and even if you run them because they're so outdated there are massive security liability yeah. on your network and that's why often once they're that often old a lot of computers that using for specific equipment cannot be connected to the networks because they pro they are prone to uh, basic security breaches because of that software. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it it really yep. leads to the aspect of 
one thing is the soft one is the hardware where where do you connect and i think often the more not it's not the hardware that's the issue it's the software that um leads to the problem oh yeah and many times like uh i don't know things like a um like plate scanners right or gel images like bits of technology that are commonplace in a lab have like you could do a huge number of different things with those and you could use all kinds of interesting software tools with the instruments that are present in those devices but you are limited to a very small subset of possibilities that were envisaged by whomever wrote yeah. the pretty basic software that comes with the device. Th- yeah, it's the limitation right. of the things like you only can do one thing yeah. on another part. In reality... You, it's like embedded software is where you really see this being a particularly problematic issue um, because it's kind of so tightly coupled with the hardware. Yeah. Going back to the human-machine interface, you have a um, few more points here that I wanted you to sort of... Um, give us a bit of brief explanation, uh, if you could. Absolutely. What was what was the specific? Um, I was yeah, so uh, curious about the transcranial magnetic stimulation in particular, but also the deep brain stimulation. Oh yes, yeah. This kind of returns back to what we were talking about before with the um, kind of broader effects on many neurons. Um, so there are devices called deep brain stimulation things, which is based more or less uh, someone sticks an electrical wire, very fine one, into a certain spot in your brain, and then you can uh, produce some electrical impulses. That isn't uh, that like the basics of, for example, um, v- uh, hearing aids. In some aspects, um, so co- cochlear implants, um, not the conventional hearing aids, obviously, but the co- cochlear implants are, are, are somewhat analogous, but they're only. Um, they're, they're peripheral, right? They're going into the the, the nerve. Get the name of the nerve, but yeah, they're they're not uh, deep brain. Mm-hmm. They're shallow yes, brain, yes. for lack of a better. Yeah. Um, uh, so deep brain stimulation is used to to treat things like um, depression and OCD, and um, I think certain uh, certain forms of epilepsy. There's a whole bunch of different stuff that people have been trying to treat with with deep brain stimulation. Um, but it's it's still a relatively crude method. I see. Um, but it is uh, it's another one of these things where uh, you having control over it starts to become uh, really interesting because so let's talk a little bit about like current stuff that people have embedded in their bodies. Okay. Right. Um, so medical implants. So you've got your your cochlear implants to give you the ability to hear. Uh, if you were born with some like uh, physical defect that isn't affecting like your neurological ability to hear, but some, something in your your ears, um, and then there's things like pacemakers, um, pacemakers yeah. and embedded defibrillators, um, and uh, in the relatively near future, we'll probably see artificial retinas. Uh, there's been a lot of work in that area, though those are not yet uh, in people's bodies. And then there's these deep brain stimulation implants. Um, which are used uh, sometimes to treat like very severe depression. Mm-hmm. There's been some success there. It's a bit hit and miss. Um, but so that that one actually has a really interesting, um, a kind of a visceral impact. Like imagine, um, so there's, there's some video you can go and look up of someone who's had one of these deep brain stimulation implants done and uh, to treat depression, mm-hmm. and they're tuning it. Right, they're trying to pick sort of the you know, the particular set of electrical signals they want to give okay. out. Basically, got a couple of knobs. And you can see this person go from like like visibly 
sad, depressed-looking expression on their face to like elated as they twiddle the knob, oh, okay. more okay. or less. Right. So you can you can like modulate someone's mood uh, from like suicidally depressed to elated. That sounds a bit by... horrifying, I would say. Yeah. Especially if you could do it remotely. Exactly. Right. So it it and one of the things that characterizes these systems that are currently uh you know embedded as medical tech is um they have really crappy security oh yeah um there was a case yeah. there are um, so many instances for pacemakers of, like recently, pacemakers um yeah has mm. been shown to be so because there are simple rfid um chips so basically you know any sort of um radio frequency um reading can you know you can read those then and they're not encrypted in any way they're not protected so a fella things like i think wi-fi and bluetooth have been used and i think some like there was an example of somebody actually physically showing they could stimulate those for example pacemakers and lead them to overcharge Mm -hmm. and basically kill the person by either stop basically leading the person to go into cardiac arrest yep yeah, actually, another one that I forgot to mention is insulin pumps. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Insulin in large doses is lethal. Pretty straightforwardly, right? It's it's, it's uh, relatively straightforward to accidentally kill someone with insulin if you put too much in there. Um, and doing it on purpose by hacking an insulin pump definitely doable. And I think this is the big part of where the cyberpunk genre really hits the nail on the coffin, where. Mm. Basically, exactly. imagine the universe where a lot of people, a large, large majority of the population has some sort of implants in them. Doesn't matter what it is. Mm. And suddenly, things like, it gets hacked. I, I want to talk about it a bit later, but things like viruses, botnets, well, you, you can mm-hmm. name whatever you want. And basically, yeah, your pacemaker will be mining cryptocurrency for Chinese hackers. Your basically your elevator heartbeat means that somebody is crypto mining <laughs> on your pacemaker. God, that sounds so weird. But um, yep. it's just it is one example of things that basically, if somebody wanted to cause a massive harm to society, I'm not even talking about the leaders, right? Good leaders, and you know, that could potentially be uh, vulnerable to such things. If you want to cripple mm. society there you go it's it's one of those things um that really scares me and i think I, I, so it could be used like at scale or at an individual absolutely. level right you could do the kind of um like imagine um ransomware attacks for God, can you imagine hardware, like a pacemaker right? being under ransomware and you have to pay exactly. to actually right. live so you, yep so like a, a if someone did a ransomware attack on your pacemaker, they, you know, your, a message pops up on your computer that says, unless you pay X cryptocurrency to this wallet address, you will die in the next few minutes because we can jack your pacemaker, right? Uh, and similar kind of stuff could be applied to... Um, uh, I mean, let, let, imagine uh, the ransomware on that um, deep brain stimulation God, device. God, it's right? just... It makes... We will make you horrendously, suicidally depressed unless you pay us a fee. Like, yeah, you can imagine somebody it's just so going dark. like, I don't care about this world and how many people I take with me. And just because somebody has hacked into that deep brain chip. God, it's horrifying. Mm. And I think this is what one big part of cyberpunk. Because, and you know, obviously we can talk about the technology, like the physical hardware technology, how close we are. We're not really close to it. 
there are some things that you know we can talk about like you know recently there's been a paper about a contact lenses that allow you to zoom so when you blink twice it allows you to see a mm. magnified image and you know things like robots and prosthetics very advanced prosthetics and stuff like that mm. um i mean even even today though that kind of stuff begins to uh, uh, i forgot his name now there's a dude from mit media lab who has really advanced prosthetic robotic limbs that kind of cost somewhere in the region of a half million dollars uh and he you know he works on this stuff as like advanced tech but imagine a world for example where like half a million dollars for some prosthetic legs that's a lot of money right you probably need a mortgage for that yeah and if so i take out a mortgage on my prosthetic legs. I can see where you're going and then with this. I fail to meet payments. So what happens with the legs, right? Do they just walk me back to the repo man's Until office? I pay back. Yeah. So this is where I was yeah. actually aiming at. So I thought cyberpunk initially, the idea of how close with technology we are for the cyberpunk is not really that we are close with it. There are some aspects, as we mentioned, that we are a- aiming almost there, like with certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, military great tech could potentially be much more advanced, you know, like uh, exoskeletons and stuff like that, allowing you to use less energy and stuff like that. Even exoskeletons embedded in your body. Um, but I feel mm-hmm. like what cyberpunk doesn't, those people who often, are, you know, in some games, movies, you know, like, you know, Blade Runner. Matrix, you know, the recent Cyberpunk 2077, the technology is, you know, like really advanced. But the fact is, the software that's always behind it is so prone to any attacks. Mm. And even it doesn't matter, like, how well, you know, if you would have AI written, so, uh, uh, you know, running this, and it's still. I don't know. It just feels to me that often this aspect of uh, is not addressed. That hmm. and actually, to to bring full circle the points we made earlier about um, software freedom and the, the vulnerabilities of these even today's implants to um, a cyber attack. Mm-hmm. Right. If you have free software and the um, the ability to run software of your choosing on that hardware then you have um, a much greater guarantee of security, right? I mean, you, there's never a 100% yep. guarantee of security, but you have, uh, like, anyone who is um, sort of really concerned about their security will run software that is open because the only way to know that it is genuinely resistant is to put it out there and have people try yeah. Right, so we used to be in the situation of like security through obscurity. Right, we used secret ciphers. Right, so back in the Second World War, like the the Enigma and these other thing, uh, codes that we used, right, the methods by which the encoding took place was concealed. Yes, but this meant if you could find it out, you had a leg up in breaking the yep. code. If you want something to be secure, you say, "This is how I'm doing it. Can you break it?" And you put it out there, and everyone hammers on it like crazy. And if they can't break it, then you have a reasonable guarantee that it's going to work. So so you get much better security through a publicly scrutinized um, set of tools than you do through one that is concealed. 
Um, and like this often, people often think that you know Apple is kind of secure with their like technology and you know, it's actually completely full of holes. It's just nobody knows about them or fewer people. I mean, do. I just yeah. wanted to remind everyone of the old uh, two thousand something fourteen fifteen leaks of personal people personal details. Uh, it's it wasn't just for the fact it was from the devices because the private photos and videos were uploaded to cloud to the cloud. And that was the mm-hmm. issue. And I think this is a good point where I think a, a way to prevent things to actually being hacked so quickly would be making sure that the interface that does um, any sort of implants in any body you have um, would not be um, connectable via radio waves. So any Wi-Fi, uh, Bluetooth, anything, only a physical connection to a computer. Would limit. Uh, would limit. I mean, I'm not saying it's a solution, but it would limit. Um, it's a, it certainly limits your attack surfaces, but there are many benefits you can get from having wireless connections. So I mean, the, I feel personally like the bulk that of the security have to be limited game. this way, because it's just like you know, if you go to a cafeteria where your device automatically, you know, your implant automatically connects to the open Wi-Fi in the cafeteria and somebody just goes, you know, sends a funny virus and you just start, you know, wildly masturbating in front of everyone with your prosthetic arm. You know, it's it sounds funny. It's, uh, where'd you get this? Scenario? I don't know. I just thought it would be the most, like, embarrassing thing that somebody can... Oh, for example, your arm's taking off your trousers, right? Like, it's a silly thing like that. But, like, <laughs> just imagine this whole situation. This is just, like, a silly example to a much more serious problem. Hmm. And it feels to me that that would be a problem and uh, a way to solve, in a way to prevent things to happen. But it's still not a way to um, to go about these things. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, one thing that is worth noting is so um, all of this data that um, large corporate entities in the kind of the surveillance capitalists, as it is. Uh, appropriate mm-hmm. to call them right the the google the facebook um apple claim to be respecting your privacy they're playing the long game don't believe anything they say that's yeah, yeah. that's yeah. pr right they want to be their own surveillance capital uh system and just sell their customers um solely to outside entities right they want a siloed set of data about their people that they can charge others to use it's a different um, slightly different approach to google and facebook but it's still going down that same line but so the the point is that the behavioral insights about how we act and what might cause us to act different ways are useful to us Mm -hmm. right if we understand better what makes us tick better what motivates us better how we might um, manipulate ourselves in some sense that's useful information to have Mm -hmm. right if I if I'm uh, if I have uh, if you know if my kind of reflective self has resolved I want to exercise more, but I'm struggling to motivate myself to do so, the ability to have insights into my behavior in such a fashion that I can put myself in a technological Skinner box that will make me exercise by you know providing me with the right set of incentives. Yep. Like that's useful information to have because that means I can force myself to do something that I'm maybe uh, you know less effective at yep. doing. Right, I can contrive my environment based on 
insights about how I behave and what motivates me to behave to cause me to do what I, at a higher level, am actually interested in doing, even if I'm not as great at doing it through sheer willpower, mm-hmm. right? So the, that kind of um, consciousness raising, right? The insights in into how we tick and thus how we can be manipulated into action are the sorts of things where like, we want to know that about ourselves and perhaps we want our friends and family who might who are interested in our well-being and uh, want to be collaborators in in pushing us in the right direction as it were manipulating sounds a bit you know uh, negatively connotated but the like that's who you want to have that information about your motivations not entities that want to shape who you vote for or what you buy right? so that you want to have that data but you just don't want others who don't have your interests yeah. as a priority. Right? So there's a lot of potential for the use of that technology. It's just that at the moment, it's not us who hold the reins to its use. And that's where, again, like free software has the the potential to kind of prevent those perverse incentive relationships, right? If, if you're using free software written by people who are also using that software who don't have... Um, an interest in uh, exercising power over you through that software, and uh, who have a you know have accountability with respect to that, right? it can be seen what they're doing. That can produce tools to use those kinds of data sources to your own yeah. advantage, right? Tools that are actually aligned with your yeah. interest and exploit the immense power of these things. So that's kind of the like the world you want to get to. Is more the the one where all this information about ourselves empowers us to act um, more in alignment with what we want. But at the moment, and the the direction that is kind of seen in the, some of these cyberpunk universes is that that power is not left in the hands of, of individuals uh, um, make use of this technology, but rather ends up as concentrating power away from those individuals in the hands of uh, some form of elite or other. I wanted to say something about um, uh, just to finish off the point on the security, because uh, I yes. want to actually talk about more also about artificial intelligence because I think in cyberpunk artificial intelligence is a big part of that genre. So, uh, mm-hmm. but before mm-hmm. that, um, just for our listeners, the fact is that hypothetically, if we have this, you know implants in us and um, disconnecting them from things like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth and just having a physical connection is not obviously the best solution but even if there are cases where scientists have shown that they can hack into computers which are completely disconnected for any Wi-Fi or or any physical connection to the internet by just using for example heat Hmm. signatures um, mm-hmm. Israeli um, scientists have shown that they can actually, in fact, break into a completely sealed computer. I mean, many of those kind of theoretical attack vectors are um, no, absolutely. I'm st- I'm just saying best. that, uh, like, just to make my point that it's it's not a most practical thing. But even if it's no physical connection, doesn't mean it's completely safe. Mm. So that's yeah, what yeah. leads to and Richard, still... what Richard was saying is that the open source ability to be able to view the the software and people making you know keeping an eye on it 
is what's very important to ensure that it still is secure enough. Mm-hmm. And even in, in a disconnected form, um, it could be acting for or against your yeah. interest, right? It's uh, whatever it is that it's programmed to do, irrespective of its uh, degree of connection to the internet is uh, uh, irrelevant. And I point. think this is Actually, really leads... <laughs> that, um, that reminds me of another thing that I think is worth pointing out uh-huh. in, in this regard. Um, so just recently, a couple of weeks ago, there was a big outage at AWS, Amazon Web mm-hmm. Services, who provide web hosting for like a huge proportion of internet yep. services. And people who had Internet of Things devices like um, Roomba vacuums mm-hmm. and uh, smart certain smart doorbells. Ah, yes, yes, yes. They just stopped working, right? So you couldn't ring people's doorbells and you couldn't vacuum your house because AWS. I was honestly out. don't understand this. Like, why would you even want a bell that's connected to a Wi-Fi? Like, I just don't grab this concept. Uh, I can see the camera if it has a camera and you can see that person's face. Yeah, they all have but cameras. But in yeah, fact, yeah. is that I mean, it's just still no. You could I don't know. It reveals the the problem with the incentive structure, right? Because this is just obviously bad redundancy engineering, yep. right? It should clearly be the case that these things should continue to function when they're not connected to the internet. And I think, but you know, just yeah. to complete this thought that, um. And that re- reveals what the value of these things is. Right? It's not to you as the consumer of them or the user of them. It's to yeah. Amazon. Right? They have no value to or, or to whomever is producing them. They have no value to them if they're not sending telemetry back yeah. to them. Right? If they're not, if they're like, if the Roomba is not somehow informing them about the layout of your house or whatever if the doorbell is not so somehow transmitting information to them about uh, what's going on outside your house how often who visits you yeah. it's not yeah there's no like that's not useful yeah to amazon if it's if, if that information is not going back to them so it's not engineered so that it will work when it can't do that yeah and this is where i think this really leads to the idea of like of an ai as well problems with ai because as i mentioned earlier cyberpunk is really also about this artificial intelligence and it's just not like humans um you know robots that are behaving like humans that are basically artificial because that's way too far in future for us to to even get this so we will i don't think there's need to discuss this but i think it's more about the collection of the information as Richard mentioned things like doorbells and the cameras and stuff like that and the Roombas and the layout of your house etc right um, but the fact of that the modern use of artificial intelligence for example like face recognition where uh, for example in China wherever you're walking into a subway there's cameras pointing towards the stairs and everybody's face is basically um, noted and immediately connected. And I remember seeing this um, video where basically VIPs were basically, you know, had one color of a box around their face, basically saying, you know, in case anything happens, those people are first to be evacuated from any danger or stuff like that. Anybody who had any problems or even said anything wrong about the government were basically in red with a suspect uh, box, box and stuff like that. It's, it's one thing that um, I think is 
crucial that we have to regulate, but also a problem with the cyberpunk itself. And I think um, I, I might be getting myself a bit ahead, but I just want to talk about the fact that you no know, cyberpunk is often about the underworld, right? Hmm. And hmm. Uh, the con- the concept of that, you know, like those those um, criminals, let's say, enhancing their bodies to be able to do whatever they need to do, let's say assassinations, you know, be faster, quicker, more precise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I think the um, the a bunch of the stuff we've talked to up till now, like the um, sort of incentive that proprietary software creates for the exploitation of users. And the surveillance capitalist business model that's kind of emerged out of that with um, extracting behavioral insights from data volunteered by the the users of those services and then uh, turning that around to use artificial intelligence to predict and now increasingly to manipulate the behavior of those users um, on behalf of interested parties who will pay the surveillance capitalist businesses to um, to get those behavioral manipulations or to get those insights into the future behavior of their users. And I think this is the big problem with like the existence of Underworld in the universe of cyberpunk. Yes. So all of that functions to concentrate power away from... Uh, individual level yes. right it puts it in the in the hands of elite institutions and individuals so it becomes sort of increasingly implausible that you could have a extensive world of uh, sort of criminal activity existing in this kind of like panopticon surveillance state that is interested in seeing and manipulating the behavior of everyone right so like the sophistication that would be necessary to try and exist as an underground or illegal institution in such a world is really like it it gets increasingly difficult but i mean even just being in a city that is kind of being in um in in what say shenzhen is becoming yeah it will be increasingly difficult to be someone who is uh, kind of outside the law uh, in any, uh, even in an innocuous sense, right? So uh, there's already the existence of these systems that will, uh, you know, if you if you jaywalk, right? If you cross the the road somewhere that's you know against the traffic laws, the cameras will do facial facial recognition on you, pick up who did it, put your face up on the the billboard of public shaming, and fine you. Just take the money straight out of your account. No due process, no consideration over whether or not the facial recognition software is actually accurate enough to do that reliably, or the possibility of like spoofing it to consider Especially someone else. Especially the fact of the deep fakes and right. nowadays the technology. Yeah. Yeah, and the ability to draw together many different factors, right? So there's it's not just facial recognition. There's gait mm. recognition, right? So just the way that you walk. Uh, like the 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 length and cadence and shape of your strides is uniquely yep. identifying right so like the possibility of evading surveillance and um you know, if you buy anything with what is becoming sort of the common currencies um let's say like uh, i think it's what's the in china the the wechat payment thing right 
that's completely transparent to governmental entities, right? They can see what you bought. So the ability to construct all of the different points from facial recognition and gate recognition and what you bought, right? It's almost impossible to even be in a city that has this kind of surveillance apparatus and exist outside the law of whomever it is who controls that, unless there is some built-in protection in that system that prevents uh, prevents the powers that be from looking at all of this. Yeah. No, I, that's why I think this is this this idea of like with the for example, I think Great Britain at the moment has like the highest number of cameras per population. Yeah, we have an insane density of surveillance cameras. And yeah. it's it's ridiculous. And the fact if if there is is such a you know vast surveillance and then you no know, facial recognition to it will be introduced. Basically, you know, like privacy in general is then in danger. And I think this is why we wanted to discuss this fact on our cyberpunk genre, is just because at the moment the world is slowly trotting this way. And we need to sort of put a stop on this before it's pretty much too late. And the aspect of like, you know this helps uh would help i don't know making the society secure it doesn't really stand because in fact mm. is that you know those people that need to be surveilled they would be surveilled anyway in manners that you know that don't need that need the uh, other the rest of the population to be put under surveillance as well mm. and there's an an interesting problem that emerges um as a feedback mechanism that compromises our ordinary legal protections and rights through the existence of this technology. So, for example, uh, again, taking the US case, because, you know, US laws in the media are a lot, it's easier to learn stuff yep. about it, right? Uh, the existence of all of these services surveilling our communications means that fourth amendment protections against unlawful search and seizure and the like are, are very heavily compromised because it, if you surrender a bunch of information that it would otherwise require law enforcement to have a warrant to search you to get voluntarily to people who will just sell that information to the government they have a loophole to get that information so it is not illegal for the government to buy information that it would be illegal for them to obtain firsthand yeah there's a big case going on with this and something to do with the IRS at the moment, right? So the, the, the compromise of rights in the digital space leads to the compromise of rights in the physical space as we increasingly uh, live in the digital space. And we have a whole, um, uh, this, you know, this represents a, a, a kind of big societal problem that we've really not been uh, addressing and there, there is this kind of um, false dichotomy between uh, like security and privacy. This kind of trade-off. Um, like you can't directly trade off one for the other. You very rarely gain much security by it's compromising been your privacy. Shown so many times that uh, breaking the encryption, creating backdoors to encrypted apps, means nothing because there's always yeah, another one that's going to be raised and. Um, just whoever wants to keep using encryption will use so it just makes the normal society vulnerable to people that shouldn't have access yep. to their devices so it makes no sense to do it it just exposes all of those who've had their privacy compromised to manipulation by 
other powers, be they lawful or not. Um, and it very, it really doesn't give you much additional useful information about that can be applied to security. I mean, like the evidence of this from, I mean, even like the NSA dragnet surveillance programs, people have testified to the fact that these have yielded like zero terrorism yep. arrests, right? There might be like one or two cases, right? You surveilled like the telecommunications of the entire goddamn planet and caught like one dude. Yeah. Like, was it really worth and the effort? The fact <laughs> so, is that like yeah. most of it was no. just used, to, honestly, it's just, it's a matter of, it makes no sense. It's a, and this is just an yep. example. Yeah, it's a false it's trade-off. An example of those things that should not have had taken place hmm. in the first place. Yeah, and like many of the kind of freedoms that underpin democratic societies are precisely placing constraint on the exercise of power by the state on the citizenry. Most of the like American constitutional amendments are in some way restricting the power of the state to act against its citizens. Right, that that we have done this before in you know the physical world. And increasingly, we need to do it for both state and powerful corporate actors in the digital space, because we have this. This, uh, I mean, uh, this kind of gets into something I was perhaps going to talk about a little later. But the, um, we end up, we have a whole new arena of civil liberties, uh, a whole new battleground over civil liberties that exists in the digital space. The various freedoms that are kind of enshrined in law in the physical world, you know, the um, like freedom of assembly, freedom of um, speech, freedom of thought, freedom um, against unlawful search, uh, freedom from self-incrimination, the right to due process, all of these things are more or less non-existent in the digital world yeah. at present. I mean, take even something like due process right when there is kind of uh when there is censorship on social media platforms there's not really any due process associated with the mediation of that and right? we don't really want these unaccountable corporate entities acting in quasi-governmental roles in digital spaces right? we, we have a whole new set of uh digital civil but liberties where we time... have to you know, assert Sorry, it's just because at the same time, it feels to me that yeah. there's also a problem with that from the other perspective. Hmm. Because things like social media allow um, so-called naysayers in a way, and I'll explain what I mean by exactly, but um, people mm-hmm. like anti-vaxxers, flat earthers, hmm. um, people who refuse basic rights to, you know, to certain groups of people. To have to uh, you know collect and accumulate right and in a way i see the problem here with what's being said is that there's one thing i'm playing devil's advocate in a way here that hmm. one thing is that you know th- those corporations are limiting without due process of a certain expression hmm. of um of um of views right but at the same time certain views are just plain stupid. I mean, the ability to be able to stupid, right? Everybody, it's the you know basic right, you no know, human right to have the opinion. But at the same time, that opinion mm. doesn't mean that it has any value. 
when there is a danger of humanity raising, for example, and I'm mostly for me, it's about anti-vaxxers, mm-hmm. right? The whole idea of the anti-vaccinations mm-hmm. causing autism, idiocy, and stuff like that. This is where I find it problematic when people have the ability to express their opinion without them being um, questioned, right? Hmm. Yes, and, and and this is where um, this is where there is a challenge in the new space because it's not merely um, the freedom to speak, but who gets their platform amplified. Yeah, that's the the difference, right? Because when when someone had something irresponsible and idiotic to say in the old days, they didn't get much of a platform. Now it's easier to get a platform. But a part of that is, I think, the issue with the incentive structure that exists for the platforms. Right? If the incentive is to maximize the time that you spend on the device, the click-through rates on ads, and thereby their profits, then it is uh, there is a strong incentive to be divisive, to increase engagement, to have those manipulations of psychological traits. If that is not the incentive structure that governs the these new public fora, right? If the incentive structure is in the interest of um, in the interests of uh, like democratic interests of the people, right? Of of promoting um, the kind of the the, the rough consensus opinions, uh, of actually uh, fostering um, conversation in in greater depth between people with more extreme views and and emphasizing the um the consensus position right giving more volume to those voices that are in the more moderate space instead of those that are in the more extreme then you no longer have that mm-hmm. issue that exists i think the the problem that causes um those bad choices of things to amplify is in the incentive structure of of the platforms i don't think it's a fundamental um i see problem with a yeah. fundamental issue with having that kind of those kind of rights to freedom of expression on 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 these sorts of platforms i think it's because of the incentive structure that exists for them i mean so uh, an, an interesting example of this uh is um so there's a there's an interesting tool that was developed for doing public consultation i think it was actually originally developed in uh-huh. seattle it's called polis okay. And it's now used quite a lot by the Taiwanese government um, and a number of places around the world. And this is uh, so in, it, it solicits input from the public about um, policy decisions. Right? If you do this in the normal fashion with like a forum thread, it immediately descends into a complete shit show. <laughs> yes. Right. We've all yeah. seen this. Right. Like uh, uh, you, you can't have that work. Right. Polis, on the other hand, is extremely effective at producing the and promoting the rough consensus opinions. It has a different structure. So the way that it works is um, you, you know, write a short representation of your opinion on the subject. What do you think about how it should work? And then you're presented with the, the lists of, of the statements that other people have made. And then you can... Agree, disagree. Um, either agree or disagree with those statements, but you can't reply to them. And then um, in order to kind of uh, visualize and look at this result, um, 
they use principal component analysis and k-means clustering to um, pull together like this is the rough consensus opinion like that you're, you're located in a space of these are the people with whom you agree these are the people who you disagree it kind of pulls out a, you know you get a, a picture of the map like a three-dimensional map of opinion where and you cluster in with this other group of people and what you end up with is kind of a you know like almost always what happens is you have a bulk of people's opinion is kind of in it has one kind of um center of mass and then you have a few well, extremes it's, i mean i guess it just falls into the normal distribution of things basically exactly right and and but so what this ends up doing is successfully promoting and drawing out the the consensus opinions right the 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 people who actually have a much more kind of reasonable moderate voice and are willing to listen to the other side and compromise and and sort of say oh yeah okay i agree with this this statement even if it's coming from someone who's kind of slightly further away it 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 pulls together that that sort of you know, middle right this this is kind of you know it's often talked about in politics when you have these um sort of two party systems you know like the silent yeah. majority but this this method is actually very successful at actually extracting the opinion of that silent majority who usually don't have their opinion heard because it's insufficiently in alignment with the, the tribes that happen to be arguing yeah. over the point right and if you're not if you're not offering in a an argument that's in favor of tribe a or tribe you're b like, then yeah you're, yeah you know, basically an enemy then... of either of those two things no to be honest it's yeah, it's exactly it's, it's right? in i think a way, a solution to a very persisting problem. For example, you know, in in the ways that, for example, uh, like you know, I I would often like to see something like this more in how, how we make decision on who we vote for, right? Because the ideas mm-hmm. um, of people being um, we are going off massive tangent here, but let's continue it because I think it's um, it's it's important thing as well to discuss that. When the European um, Union Parliament voting was happening, the one thing I really enjoyed about mm-hmm. it was, uh, although I need to say I am pissed off at the, that I couldn't vote because of the um, my local council, but doesn't matter. Um, the fact was that if it didn't go, there was there are certain aspects that they were asking, and there were certain points of you can choose. What do you think about this? How do you feel about this particular um, issue, right? That that's especially hmm. um, problematic at the time, let's say, or at least raised. Mm-hmm. And you could have chosen, you know, several options. How do you see it? There's like a list, and then you could read through all of them and think about them, and then you picked. And then at the end, it would suggest you the person. You could potentially that has the closest of your points of view, who really mm-hmm. sort of thinks the similar way as you, and I think this is something that should be implemented more. That the fact, uh, first of all, the concepts and the certain people have said have been fact checked, um, and second thing is that if there's anything, instead of like looking at the, I mean, obviously personal history of some of politicians is important because some of them are absolute. Mm-hmm. No, I was gonna finish this, but, but uh, the, basically, the <laughs> their personalized care is shows often the effect of their character. But at the same time, if you're not interested in the character, but what they plan to say to do and they do it, that's probably the best way to sort of get people to vote for people that you want to vote for. Hmm. 
Yeah. And the the popularity of, of tools like that, um, uh, I forget the name of the group in the UK that does this, but that um, you know shows you the policies and says, okay, you're most in alignment with the policies of this yeah. political party. Uh, those um, tools are increasingly popular, especially with younger voters. Yeah, I think because considering the fact that um, internet is now overflowing with the information, it's hard to filter out everything, especially you know when you know hmm. social media, as you mentioned earlier, works by conglomerating all the like to like and uh, groups. So it, it, the, even with the mm-hmm. dumbest ideas you may have will find someone who has similar idea and just to, to dump society just keeps growing um it just shows the aspect that it's important that things like this are important to be implemented more that this is a crunch of sort of the information the basic aspect that everybody can understand and if everybody wants to uh read more about this there's a fact checking and source to things that people said mm-hmm yeah, so, I mean, uh, education in media literacy um, and how to consume content in a environment where there is kind of an, uh, a certain amount of information warfare yeah. taking place is a very interesting. Uh, like, it's it's an area of education that increasingly we need, but we haven't had enough of. I think um, it's, it's interestingly um, Estonia mm-hmm. and Finland both have this quite prominently featured in their educational curricula because they're both exposed to a lot of Russian media yeah. propaganda. I think... Um, uh, sorry, it's just... No, uh, it's just because I think that the problem is nowadays that often more or often more than not, like there's a lack of critical thinking lessons, right? You say that schools often, you know, critical thinking, critical thinking, you know, aspect, how to analyze information with critical thinking, right? Most of them, they don't actually do what they're supposed to do, like how to properly teach it, how to be skeptical hmm, yeah. of things. It's um often too theoretical yes, and insufficient. Yes, the, 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 there's hypothetical scenarios are too theoretical and not applied to actual real-world scenarios. That's the problem, I think, that often these things are failing at. Um, but mm. I just wanted to say that, well, we went over the massive tangent here, as always. I mean, it's, it's not bad. It's, those things have <laughs> to be discussed and talked about and go out there. Um, so, I don't know, maybe we should move on a bit to more of our aspect medicine in the cyberpunk. This one last sort of section of our today's discussion. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's um, talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, I suppose it relates a little bit to what we spoke about earlier with the kind of um, genetic engineering of humans to interface yep. with the technology. But that's that's clearly not the only genetic engineering we're yes. going to be doing. With the advent of um, CRISPR technologies and um, the possibility of you know, germline genetic engineering in, in kids, yeah. Like the that has enormous potential to do things like eradicating rare genetic yeah. diseases. So there's a collection of you know five to ten thousand rare single mutation diseases that you can basically eradicate that whole class of diseases by doing yeah germline genetic engineering with yeah. CRISPR like tech in um, kits. And indeed, um, even before that, doing 
um, embryo selection uh, is something that's that's um, being done a lot. So uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and screening is what's uh, referred to um, in in the uh, the industry as well. So there's a whole bunch of diseases. Um, I think the list is expanded. Last time I checked, it was a little over 600, where you can do um, that you can fertilize an embryo and sequence it and check if they have this disease and then pick embryos that don't for implantation in IVG. And I think this is going to be a big part of especially in um, mm-hmm. in future, especially. It's not just about diseases, I think. I want to go a bit more uh, hmm. dystopian. Um, so just just to say so that that's like the current yeah, state of the yeah, technology. Yeah, that's currently right? where we are. That it is currently the case that we're in the process of eradicating um, these rare genetic diseases um, through um, initially through pre-implantation genetic screening and uh, before too long uh, some of them may well be done through CRISPR-like genetic engineering. And then, but the thing is that the moment limitation um, is that it has, to, it has to be done at the very germline um, stage, embryo stage, because at the moment, the adult modification is a bit too difficult for for this this end. Um, it won't take. It will still mm. take a long time before we can even. The sorts of intervention that take place in the adult system are. You have to mediate them through something like a viral vector that will insert the whatever genetic patch you've come up with to the problem. Say, if there's someone's got a gene deleted, you have a virus that has a copy of that gene, and you can insert that into their genome like the success rate of that yeah. is not great and also if you have to deliver it to every inserting. cell in the body it's just not feasible because you will still have exactly. some cells expressing the original copy mm. of the gene and then that will lead to maybe reduction mm. of the symptoms a bit but it still eventually will it can um the it will and the, the disease will come back to its original state with time yeah yeah so, I mean, there are certain specific systems, like some, um, like in the eye, uh, treatment that might impact on, on neurons in the eye uh, with a viral vector has an unusually high success rate. It's also very self-contained. It's a very sort of, um, if you do an intraocular injection, it stays in the eye. It doesn't really get much beyond yeah. the optic nerve. So that has a lot of, um, like there are treatments to treat genetic diseases that will cause blindness. And I guess because that's um, a closed environment for for that such treatment, yeah. Yes, yeah. It's a has a high safety um, likelihood because it's such an enclosed environment. And other things like um, treatment, for example, there's a possibility of treatment for things like sickle cell anemia by replacing um, stem cells the same way that you might do for leukemia. You knock out all of the blood stem cells and you replace them with some that don't have the sickle cell mutation and then all the blood that's produced subsequently no longer has that yep. mutation. Right. So there are certain specific biological systems where you can apply this where it's likely to have a much higher um, success rate, but there are a lot of tissues where that won't yep. work well. Um, so the germline method ends up being a lot more Wait effective. To if, if, if there's a, for example, history in the family and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Plus, it it has both the it's the double edged sword of being heritable, right? If you make the change in an adult, you're only changing the somatic cells, or like, so that's the idea. So you don't affect the offspring, 
Um, whereas if you change the germline, you affect all the cells, including yep. the germ cells, so you affect the offspring. So if you're doing something like curing a rare genetic disease, you probably want to cure that in the germline because you don't want someone to grow up and have to have the same problem of you know, not uh, having to undergo some kind of treatment or IVF in order to have kids that won't have this condition. Um, but at the same time, you know, then there's you know, people are, are concerned about the possibility of, of uh, introducing potentially damaging mutations into the human germline so that it might negatively impact on your ability to have yeah. kids in the future. So it has two, um, two sides to the germline thing. But I think, so this is the sort of the state we are at the moment, um, whereas the futuristic sort of cyberpunk, we're talking more even further sort of modification of, let's say, those German embryos where we create superhumans, strength, um, yeah. better processing power of our brains, uh, efficiency, you know, and the pumping the blood around uh, by our hearts, all of that. Mm. And actually, in fact, recently, um, there's a news that, you know, th- there has been some cases of a year ago, two, uh, a Chinese scientist mm-hmm. was uh, found to be doing uh, illegal CRISPR modifications to uh, embryos, human embryos. He then disappeared, but then mm-hmm. reappeared after some time. But then again, actually, don't know how much truthful this information is that CIA has released the information about that China is trying to generate superhumans right and the fact is it's not an easy ma- uh, uh, feat to do such thing but considering the fact that it does fit in our um, sort of conversation discussion today about the cyberpunk where you know human modifications are taking place and um, addition of humans um, will take place in future initially for only the richest and then maybe once the technology is more uh, cheaper um, for others, but I don't think it'll be that um, um, that much cheaper. But hmm. it shows that there's going to be a, a, an imbalance of certain aspects. Yes. So a- access to this kind of um, gene-modifying technology, particularly certain areas of it, has the potential to produce uh, you know, this kind of societal inequalities with the wealthy able to afford it but there's one thing about this that um, i think is sort of underappreciated as a um an effect of the possibility Mm -hmm. of doing this it's that you will be able to produce more specialized individuals Mm -hmm. right because it's, it's almost impossible to dial up everything right you end up with some kind of compromise right if you want to be a sprinter you need different things than if you want to be a long yes, distance yes, runner. Yes, absolutely. Right? So I can't make you both Usain Bolt and Mo Farah, right? The, the slightly different characteristics that you need to be uh, yes. good at both those things. So one of the implications of um, the possibility of doing gen- genome engineering is that you will be able to be engineered to be sort of naturally adept at a p- very particular set of yes, skills. Yes, I have a particular right? set of skills. Which kind of has... Yeah. Um... <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, Liam Neeson. <laughs> uh, oh, dear. Sorry, um... continue. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it got me thinking about the well. I mean, one of the things that comes up is the whole you know making the super soldier idea, right? The the um, the person who could potentially achieve what Liam Neeson achieves in those taken movies in real life, and you know survive attempting to kill half the army of whomever it is who seems to be kidnapping his daughter, right? That's uh, the uh, um, although I, I suspect that kind of um, uh, uh, like advanced military genetic engineering stuff. I mean, there'll probably be some of that, but I don't see it being that geopolitically popular in the near future. Um, because, you know, the equation of, um, like, choosing to engage in a hot war in the context of nuclear weapons is, uh, you know, not great, right? It has, a, it has a whole risk profile that can end up destroying the world, right? Whereas the possibility of engaging in proxy conflicts through technology, like drones and um, uh, other sort of non-conscious, non-human-containing hardware, like if you're fighting with those and just destroying one another's assets, you're less likely to be embroiling yourself in a conflict that could escalate to a yeah. nuclear exchange. So I'd see the priority of um like creating super soldiers as being kind of a bit lower than you might typically expect from the portrayal in fiction but yeah i mean there'll be a few people who are interested in that definitely and um you know might well be um uh you know genetically enhanced special forces units that could be a thing um, but not like mass armies, I wouldn't have thought. I guess also is an aspect um, of like I I'm thinking of a medicine perspective of like there's been conversation about headless bodies for like organ transplants and stuff like that. Because bear in mind, mm -hmm. cyberpunk is one thing about you know like those cool weapons and modification lets you you know helps you to run faster, you know jump higher and stuff like that. But as well as things like mm -hmm. you know we mentioned pacemakers, but how about if we could have a fully artificial heart that is never going to run out of you know it will forever it's going to beat like because it has a mini nuclear reactor or something you know like this i'm being silly right now but the concept stands <laughs> um <laughs> meaning that you don't have to worry about some cardiovascular diseases that affect heart um that you know your body's gonna pump the blood no matter what you know your heart's gonna be strong. It's continuous. Same with like other things, liver, you know, like or kidneys, for example. A a little dialysis mm -hmm. devices inside of you that help you to uh, perform dialysis because your kidneys are not working. You know? And and there's the one thing is you no know, having them artificial. The second one is like um, having them lab grown, right? Organs, because cyberpunk mm. shown it does indicate mm. that you know if the technology is so advanced potentially the medicine med medical technology biological technology is also as, uh, as advanced absolutely yeah i mean so many of those things um like the prospect of an artificial heart or artificial kidneys it like people don't appreciate the degree to which biology is yes. nanotechnology right there are so many complex subtle molecular chemical level things that are occurring it's not like like a kidney is not a filter a heart is not a pump right? there is a lot more to the function of those things that you would have to recapitulate in technology um, to replace them so doing the bioengineering 
uh, version of it, right? Tweaking them to increase their performance in in uh, uh, a more um, bio-native context, as it were, is a much more realistic near-term prospect than outright replacing them in many ways. Um, at, at least replacing them in such a fashion that it's unambiguously better in all respects, not just in certain specific, more yes. narrow regards. Um, so I think yeah. this is... I think this point here, the modification of humans, and I want to sort of go back um, to the social aspect, if I may, because mm -hmm. I think it really nicely mm -hmm. ties up everything what we said today and goes back to the concept that, for example, some media, especially games, but um, books, you know, in general, the so uh, cyberpunk genre, um, tackles is the social differences. And I think... The biggest problem and often question, especially, for example, games like Deus Ex um, tackles is the pure human versus uh, modified human aspect, right? It's it's not anymore about skin mm -hmm. color or anything because basically with the cyberpunk genre, you can be pink if you want it. That goes sort of somewhere <laughs> else. It's the matter of like, where you modified, where you lab grown in a way, let's say, um, although this sort of, mm -hmm. um, uh, what's the word, uh, this um, problem or, you know, like uh, I remember people, you know, like when the IVF was introduced first time, the first successful IVF uh, concept, when people were like tube grown, right? Like lab grown. This is like, you come from a tube, it's not really as, but it is. The, the word um, that they used in Gattaca is degenerate right they had the the people who were and actually no that applied to a specific um that was people who were pretending to have genetics that were different from uh their actual genetics right um as opposed to um just like the the unmodified right um but yeah uh um so yeah that divide between the the modified and the unmodified so i think this so aspect of like you know inequality because now, no, no, these social issues still apply to you know to sexes and skin color and origins where you come from. I think those problems will be even further enhanced when we, like with the Onkali, you know, even xenogenesis, xenogenesis that we're discussing through, the idea mm -hmm. to be able to genetically modify your body, like Lilith was, to be faster, regenerate, fa you know, to be stronger, faster, regenerate faster mm -hmm. from any damage. Mm -hmm. will lead to even further inequalities because imagine you know like in the olympics for example where nowadays and any body enhancements are forbidden right so mm -hmm. yeah but imagine a human that's being modified and it wasn't made public goes into an, and basically beats all the records yeah, yeah. without breaking a sweat they do a body mm. test and then basically the testosterone levels or whatever, the drugs are completely normal and there's no presence of any enhancement drugs. And the human is just mm. the way he mm. is because higher muscle fiber density and stuff like that. So I think there's going to be this massive yeah, yeah. issue. So you you might start to see these caste sort of socioeconomic divides instantiated in, in the choices of modifications yes. that people make. So you might see, say, elites having um, longevity and intelligence 
and beauty like modifications and then individuals who are kind of in the more working space they might have modifications that are more extreme and have other costs right so modification for extreme strength that might shorten your lifespan modification for um, extreme intelligence that might impair some other aspects yes. of your mental health um, to work in particular technical fields and i think um, it, this is gonna be so a big big you, topic that, to be uh, in discussion especially the ethics behind hmm. it and it, it has huge implications for for self-determination yeah. right because you can't because this stuff will at least initially and i think for quite a while have to be something that is effectively in the germline so or, or at least um from mm -hmm. very early on in your developmental process because it's, it's hard to change adult bodies it's easy with developmental plasticity to produce different outcomes relatively babies, speaking basically. so exactly right so but the choice of the careers for which you will be most suited will not be your choice anymore to be um, it'll be more yes yeah well i mean it's not that it's not that your aptitudes now are your choice right but they will now be someone else's conscious choice so instead of having no determination and kind of a more even distribution of chance for a particular random set of attributes we now have the ability to choose a specific set of attributes that we will um, endow our offspring with uh, and thereby shape what careers to which they yeah. will be most suited um, which has you know, serious ethical implications for autonomy. Absolutely, and I think this will really spark the um, idea, especially you know the ethical and also religious views on on the world, because it, it does us. It's going to affect a lot of uh, ideas, and the problem is it's a ongoing, already happening, taking place process. Although at the moment it's only just beginning to take its first steps. But, you know, who knows by 2077 mm. if we don't have the technology to actually do it and already people having designing babies. Mm. Mm. I mean, the, the beginnings of designer babies yes. know, have already taken place, like you mentioned with, with uh, Hee-Jean Kui doing the first CRISPR babies. Um, but selection for particular traits is already kind of like a commercially available product. You know, if you want a particular sex or a particular eye color, you can pay to have embryos selected that will have those traits. Um, this is you know, the direction of travel. Yeah. I think this is this is a a very important aspect that will have to be discussed in future in the several and a few decades. Yep, I said to again to bring a connection mm -hmm. to what we talked about before. Like this is a fraught topic this is a difficult conversation to have it's a nuanced subject and there are many extreme views about it so having the capacity to have well-reasoned and informed public discourse and consultation on these issues you know in fora that will not inflame our passions in the interests of ad revenue but rather promote our you know our democratic autonomy to decide how as a people we want to move yes. forward with these technologies is more important than ever i think it's it's going to be a lot of these things that we discussed today will take place in a 
public forum discussion in near future because technology is moving forward and no matter what you do no matter how much you want to um argue back that it's you know it's not going to be that right it's going to be because we already have technology mm. for this it's just making it optimized for certain aspects mm. so we we have the choice of of how we're going to use it and how we're going to govern its use but it exists and we can't put it back in the drawer nor would we want to because there are many good things that you can achieve with as it as much as also uh, many bad things but just it's this master of this this is this is the like the the case yeah. with all technology can, though right the, the technology grants us additional capabilities right the ability to do more um, and always the ability to do more destructively than constructively, because that's you know, the, the nature of things is there, there are more range, more ways to arrange things in bad configurations than good configurations, right? There's a relatively narrow set by comparison with all the ways you could set the world up that are yeah. better yeah. by comparison with many that are worse, right? So the, we have this this challenge of threading the needle of making sure that we use the added capabilities that we have to create a world that we want to live in as opposed to a dystopian I nightmare. think you're absolutely right and I think on this note this is a good point I think where do we could finish this because I think we've discussed this in a really mm -hmm. comprehensive um, way where it really talked about basically the technology the hardware the, the software you know and um the interfaces and i think all of these topics will become more and more um present in the everyday discussion and news and media, media outlets mm. uh, yeah i mean they, they certainly need to be right um there are many other less important subjects of less profound import for our near-term future that are occupying yes. too much airtime um and some of this stuff will, I think, uh, before too long, start forcing itself into the Absolutely. public attention. The, um, I mean, uh, you know, you would hope that um, all these topics that we discussed today will start, you know, being discussed in a way um, to ensure that they are not skimmed over and not too late for them. That we are discussing this too late. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when things already are mm, taking place, no. that they should, that are beyond basically everything what we have seen so far mm -hmm. w without um successful public discourse on these subjects uh, the powers that be in one form or another can slip stuff under the uh you know under the radar that will entrench their yep. vested interests uh, so you know, unless we have this public conversation we are um no, at the risk of heading down that uh, dystopian route rather than one where the uh, the power of the technology is used to serve the interests of the the demos yeah of the people i think so too and we need to get ready for this and you know we don't want mm. to end up like you know the remaining group of people in xenogenesis books you know, suddenly waking up in a place unknown to them um, that they have no control over. So I think this is this discussion will have to really start ta taking its uh, place and taking the toll on the modern uh, society now 
when we can introduce it in a um, controlled manner for hmm. its slate. Yes. So I guess with that saying, okay. thank you everyone for listening to us. It's been, you know, it's a long episode with yes. a lot of tangents uh, and a lot of discussion about a lot of different topics. Yeah, thank you very much for indulging us in this conversation, if you've made it this <laughs> yes, far, that is. Yes, if you've made it so far. Um, <laughs> I, think it's, yes. I, I think this conversation for anybody interested in the topic will be beneficial to, to read upon more. Yeah, we, we covered a lot. Maybe. <laughs> maybe it maybe it'll be easier. It would be beneficial for people to read upon this topic more, especially when I have to make references for this, because my goodness, I'm going to spend days on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Hopefully this serves as a useful jumping off point for people interested in um, some of these areas. We covered a lot of ground. We did so in a slightly non yeah fashion but that's yeah of, to that's be honest we do I, like when you if you look <laughs> at notes and the way discussion went we just basically jumped all over the place parallel but i think it matched the conversation pretty well i think it went uh yes yeah we covered the ground that i think we wanted to cover even if in not quite the same order but many of these phenomena are deeply interconnected so Yes, it, it can be tricky to navigate yes, them yes. in a so defined the, order. It's a, uh, it's a make a sort of correct um, order of things, or at least discussion goes smoothly enough about it. So, with saying mm. with that, thank you very much for okay. listening to us. I was Mike Klinka. I was Richard Acton. Thanks for listening to us. Bye. Goodbye.